Hi everybody and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, I am, my belly is full of ginger, cayenne pepper, and pineapple. I feel fantastic. How are you today? You know, I am too. Uh, I think those are great uh, substances to have within the organic being. I support that 100%. Uh, I'm a big one for uh, all things spicy. I think there's a lot of good, you know, world cultural rationale for that. So I'm with you. I don't. Uh, I've got to uh, get some ginger happening. You've inspired me on that front because I love ginger. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, mm-hmm. I feel the psychic uh, resonance. My tuning yeah. forks are, are vibrating too. So, yeah. well, you know, leading off of last week's. Uh, talk about how I'm going back on a bit of a beer fast. I realized that beer wasn't the only thing that I had let slip since my son was born. I've been eating processed foods. Yesterday I got a, a free sub, a tuna sub sandwich from Jersey Mike's, and it tastes so good they smother it in this oil. And I go to Jersey Mike's so much, I have what they call shore points shore points to redeem so i got a free sandwich and i woke up this morning feeling uh like shit frankly like i've been hit by a truck i don't know if the tuna was old or the bread is maybe not real bread but i started thinking to myself why do we always have to wait for things to break down before we start taking care of them so i went to the store and i got some ginger and some cayenne it's not going to be, uh, I'm not a big supplement guy anymore. I'm not going to be, you know, supplementing glycine and ZMA and testosterone or whatever else. But just, you know, just diet. And, <clears throat> you know, when you get into this kind of stuff, you'll have friends and you know, acquaintances. They'll say things like, you know, you're going to die anyway, right? And it's like, yeah, but I don't want to feel like shit the whole time before I get there. You know, I'd like to feel good. And I, I, I just wanted to put that out there into the world. All, all of our listeners know this. It's that kind of crowd. But sometimes, I don't know. I mean, I'm part of that crowd too, and I forgot, right? I forgot like, uh, like how we all forget that we're in this, that we all agreed to be in this collective dream together before we were born. I forgot you could just feel good for no reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it's interesting about, you know, diet is, a, is one of those, it's one of the most frequently used words. Uh, it really just leapt off the charts beginning in the 1920s with all, you know, there's a lot of wonderful fad diet stuff then. Yeah. If people aren't aware of, you know, they think, well, fad diet Cigarettes started like in the 60s. Yeah. Well, you know, it was all like, it's just this crazy, crazy stuff. And uh, so... But it go, the word goes back to the 13th century, and it sort of starts to show that people are a little bit, you know, beginning to understand that, you know, not only as above, so it is below, as it is outside, so is it inside. And the stuff you take inside is kind of like, well, maybe that's a clue, you know? Mm-hmm. You know maybe if you're eating a lot of really nasty stuff. Uh, I mean, I had a, uh, at one point... Um, I decided I was going to get a, a, a pizza because I hadn't. I don't eat pizza, you know, at all, and I yeah. add stuff yeah. to it. But right. this looked like a pretty solid, you know, basic thing to start with, and I could add vegetables and stuff. 
Well, you know what? I mean, I should have just really done the whole thing from scratch, scratch, because I might as well have eaten the box, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, it's not I, good. I, I wasn't like sick, you know? I wasn't, I wasn't vomiting, I didn't have dysentery, I didn't, you know, I wasn't on the toilet for four hours or whatever, but I just felt like crap. A little you bit know? of acid reflux, a little bit of sluggishness, that kind of thing. That's yeah. what I get from pizza. I, Rios and I don't eat pizza anymore. Her pregnancy really affected what she's able to eat. She used to have a cast iron stomach, which is it's looking like Gus takes after her in that respect, which is great. But her pregnancy, along with the um, gestational diabetes that came along with it, has made certain foods unpalatable now. And pizza is one of them, which is so tragic because she loves pizza. But we just can't do it. It's like you were saying. We went to a high-end pizza place. You know, we got two small pies. It came out to $32. So, you know, the best of the best. They were. It was a margarita pizza, which is all veggies, as far as I know. Big slices of tomato. And then a pizza with pineapple on it. Don't clutch your pearls. Pineapple pizza is good. That's the end of that debate, as far as I'm concerned. But we suffered. We suffered for it anyway. Because <laughs> it's just not... It's just not good food. It's something about the the bread or something. I don't know. Or the tomato sauce. Or it's very harsh, very, uh, very acidic. Well, I don't know if it's the acids necessarily. Anyhow, so we just don't do that anymore. But oh. it's you know take that one step further and like okay so maybe maybe we'll make our own tacos from scratch with fresh lettuce and fresh tomatoes and things like that. It's a basic philosophy of try to do as many things yourself as possible. That's what the yeah. Solomon Islanders right, and people right. in New Guinea would say. Why? It's not because you're afraid of being dependent on other people. But yeah, that's not a bad idea. But do stuff that you, you really know about. And in the doing more yourself, you actually find out more about life. It's know? the tribesmen, you know, taking apart the earth mover and putting it back together, not just to know how it works, but to put a little bit of yourself into it. There's a lot of good magic in that, in everything. And I think that, um, yeah, you know, if you look at it from this temporally optimized capitalist time that we're in, where time is money, as Bateson points out, yeah, you want to just buy stuff off the shelf to make it to make everything easy. But I wonder if one fraction of the overall kind of malaise that we talk about on this show has to do with the fact that nobody's souls are put into any of the things that they use on a daily basis. They're just plastic. It's exactly what it is. And and it goes back to many of our heroes you know, McKenna, John Lilly, Persig, and Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And, you know, just little things. This is one of our other really important ideas. And I, I personally have drawn a lot of inspiration from Diane Karajanakis, who's one of our dedicated listeners. And Hi, Diane. She, her whole deal is like little changes under your own roof line, within your own life, things that you can control. Just little things. Don't don't try to go for the you know the big targets, but don't complain about you know giant things of corporations and government decision making. Make some decisions yourself, 
and yes. it, it, it triggers and dominoes a whole new world and to uh, we really are getting through to some people because I got another one of my uh, private students got uh, in touch with me and she says openly that she started off just as the the hopeless teenage girl in her room that everyone complains about and she mm -hmm. is now in her late 20s broken out of this entirely and she said I have really followed uh, your crystal radio idea of just doing some experimenting and she said I'm very proud to report that I can say with some confidence that the higher the quality of ice cream the more the cons more consistent the rate of melting is mm. And I thought, that's so true. That's you know, so true. It, it sounds silly, doesn't it? But it really is important to know those kinds of things at an individual level, and not just to you know follow somebody's idea of science, but actually to do a little bit of engagement with the world. You know, mm -hmm. see, yeah, see gelato for melts. Gelato melts so quickly. You have to eat gelato fast, or you're going to have a puddle. Um, that. Uh, Diane's idea of changing little things reminds me of the Rudolf Steiner uh, Connor Habib idea of every day at a certain time performing one small action that's that's all yours whether it's rotating a ring on your finger or you know uh, running your your fingers through your hair but an intentional action that you take every day begins to set those dominoes falling Yes, your, yes, it for does. For your internal clock, you know? Um, yes, it does. Before we go too much further, because I can tell we're both hyped up today, we're going to have a really good episode. I can feel it in my bones. Gus might wake up. He might be our third mic. That's always fun. Um, before we do that, you've given me my five words that I'm going to try to slip two into during our conversation. But as listeners will know, I also have an imaginative challenge that Chris gives me every week. So, what is my, what's my, what, well, first of all, before I ask you that, what is your band and what is your aphorism for the Okay, for the okay, yes. Well, I've gone uh, with a summer theme for the band uh, mm -hmm. to the old heart of, of rock and roll and, and punk and uh, the anarchy of, of pop culture, that side of it. I'm going to go with brain-eating amoeba okay, uh, like as it. the band yeah. name. Uh, a good sort of surf punk thrash garage band who uh, are just, you know, thinking they need to personify chaos. And with that mm -hmm. sort of entropy that will... Our, our internal orders will fall in place around that. But I think brain-eating amoeba really gets to the heart of, of the rock and roll promise, you know? Mm -hmm. it, uh, it's, it's certainly the mind part of it. It's not the booty-shaking uh, part of it, but that's what, that's what happens. You know, your booty starts to shake more when your brain has been eaten, you know? I, I, I like the idea of having their first record cover have a, a cat on it like a like an egyptian cat being worshipped and uh they could call it uh i don't love my toxoplasmosis but my toxoplasmosis loves me 
Ooh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> you know, and I love the reference to Egypt. One of my neighbors says, we are all Egyptologists, even if we don't know it. And I, mm-hmm. I really like That's living so in... That's so true. Yeah. So true. I um, like living in a neighborhood where a guy, you know, who's kind of around my age with a scruffy dog out hiking. He looks like a Bedouin. You know, he's got, he's mm-hmm. always, you know, out in the dense sunlight wrapped up and looks like a nomad out in the middle of nowhere. But, he, you know, he uh, says, we're all Egyptologists. But here's my aphorism for uh, this week. I thought, well, with brain-eating amoeba being kind of fun and back to basics of, of rock and roll, uh, I'd go a little bit hardcore with the aphorism. For those people who think in terms of whether their glass is half empty or half full, Perhaps the better question is, are you half alive or half dead? Damn. Yeah. That, that is a good one. Yeah, I, like I thought we'd get down to it. Get down to it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I like that. I like that. All right. Well, here's your imaginative challenge. There is a human capacity which underlies our survival at the most basic level. It is something we confront every single day in every single relationship we deal with. And it is the idea of a deal or an agreement. And some of these are unspoken, you know, in romantic relationships and live-in, you know, marriage, love affair. You know, we, we kind of can't deal with having all of these things formalized. But every once in a while, we do need to have a formal sort of agreement. It's the essence of a lot of crime stories, as you know. How are we going to divvy up, you know, the robbery mm-hmm. money, you know? Uh, yeah. And when we look more, you know, a little bit, we don't even have to get too deep to realize that language is one of the most miraculous consensus agreements that has ever been conceived. You know, we we do have an agreement in place to make language sort of work. So you've got a wide, wide spectrum from uh, a relationship agreement, you dry and I wash, Uh, we're gonna split the jewel heist this way, this word means this, but I want you to come up with a scenario that hinges upon an agreement, a deal, Mm -hmm. that has enough formal structure that both parties, and you could introduce a third party, choose that everybody knows where they stand the question is will people agree and follow through on the deal it's a great principle of a lot of dramatic uh, turning points in literature mm-hmm. art film mm-hmm. you know it's it's something that that writers need to be really really uh, careful about and oftentimes they're just pathetic about I mean I was at the Bread Love Writers Conference once and I noticed that none of the writers could agree on anything you know Mm -hmm. Um, and the old joke about English teachers going out uh, for dinner and they're still there 
you know, trying to negotiate who's going to pay the bill or how it's going to be divvied up. So the deal principle, and this is something that we as a culture have completely failed on, at least in the moment, where no one, you know, no one can grant that there is a deal in place mm -hmm. and that maybe there are some responsibilities. Ah. So mm -hmm. you've got some wide latitude there to, and I, I'm thinking that because you have a genius at these things, and it's really starting, other people are starting to really pick up on it, going, what state are we going to come up with next? Uh, that you may take us through multiple levels here, from something apparently simple to something, you know, that is at the heart of the world. So, mm. Okay, I have some... I have some ideas percolating already. Like I said, this is going to be a good one. This uh, this ginger is really doing something to my brain. Good stuff. Um, okay, I love it. I'll be thinking about that on a parallel track to what we're talking about today. Oh, speaking of, I got to tell you, I, I bought um, some gummies online, some weed gummies that I haven't, they haven't arrived yet. I don't have them, but they are specifically designed I don't want to do an ad for them because they're not paying us but they're specifically designed for people like me who have never had a good relationship with THC so I'm excited about that oh that's that might, cool might kind of mellow me out right so so right now you're just getting me on on ginger and cayenne pepper <laughs> uh, but next cool. episode who knows maybe I'll be a little maybe I'll be a little buzzed when we when we chat um okay cool Let's uh, let's get into the show. Last time you gave us an epic tool, an all-timer, a tour-de-force tool uh, called the Disappearing Inventory. The idea being that in order to sort of grasp the present moment that we're in, we need to get a handle on our past, specifically the various moving parts involved in any given thing that we pick up off the table and look at. It's interesting, in fact, that you and I started this conversation by talking about how little we are in the items that we have, and yet the items themselves do have fingerprints on them, which is something else that you mentioned, knowing your own fingerprint. Anyhow, so with this disappearing inventory, with this idea that there are all these uh, items and things that if you take one piece out, no longer exist, like the disappearing pictures in Back to the Future. Uh, we also began to discuss this idea of, of, of sort of tourism, right? Tourism in other people's worlds. So I wanted to turn it over to you. I know you have a bunch of thoughts for this episode, and uh, we can start up the riff machine and start riffing. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, you know, coming at this from so many different points of view, I think that one of the key uh, techniques that we talk about in the Psychic Defense Manual, uh, and we try to perform across the podcast in, in you know, real, real time, real lifetime, uh, is, is coming at things multidimensionally. Uh, and, and think about just your eyesight of just, you know, don't look at the screen all the time. Move your eyes around the room. Get up out of your chair. We need to be sort of moving dimensionally to be able to process any information because I've, otherwise everything becomes uh, two-dimensional. 
and one-dimensional mm-hmm. conceptually. Mm-hmm. So I, I had, I'm going to start off with two reading recommendations, which are really strange, but they show the, the idea of navigating, and this is going to be our theme in terms of, of the tourism idea. Uh, I rediscovered a book called The Camel and the Wheel by Richard Boullier. Bull, I-E-T, The Camel and the Wheel. Very, very interesting. Now, this is an example of disappearing inventory-type thinking because, I mean, really, do you spend much time thinking about camels? Well, I suggest we all should because (laughs) there's something really (laughs) fundamental. You know, you take camels and their relationship to human culture out of the mix, and you'd be amazed at how empty the world starts to look things start disappearing all around you. Um, and then for whatever reason, because uh, you know the mind is an eclectic searching organism, uh, I came across an old classic that I recommend thoroughly to rediscover at this time, particularly for anyone who is involved in parenting. Uh, the classic book, Why Johnny Can't Read by Rudolf Flesch. Uh, it's a beautiful polemic for the importance of uh, phonics and uh, of an approach to teaching reading that is now out of fashion with our left-leaning school unions across America to, uh, and their, their failure is becoming more obvious every day. Um, but those two, two books are an example of looking at some things that are deep structure to the point of mundane structure that we take for granted. And this is what the disappearing inventory as a tool starts getting us thinking about. Uh, There's nothing that is insignificant. Mm -hmm. Or said another way, you better be really, really on your game before you start making decisions in a framing sense, a great no country term. invested framing, which is a you know a conventional term, but we've added a lot of, of meaning and value to that. It takes a lot of know-how and know-well to be making decisions about what is insignificant. You know, it, it really does. And we've all got to sort of wake up, you know. I mean, how many people walking around don't know that Istanbul is the biggest city in Europe? You know, come on. Mm-hmm. It's just Europe. Right, you know, right, I mean, right. we've we've got to we've got to get involved in 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 life at a deeper level in order to make decisions about what is insignificant. One of the things I talk about in uh, the textbook is the discipline of photographing apparently completely mundane objects, like my stapler. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, it takes a bit of skill to make uh, an ordinary stapler an interesting work as a centerpiece for a photograph. But what a phenomenal bit of arrogance on my part it would be to say, well, that's not interesting enough, you know? Mm -hmm. And we've also Mm -hmm. talked about the the tool of inversion. Whenever you say something isn't interesting enough, there's a deficit of something. There's a lack. Well, what if there is a surplus? a surplus of transparency, a surplus of something. We start to at least toy and engage and play with the world a little bit, and we start to question these frames that we 
too often just accept that aren't even ours. You know, they're just handed to us, and we we use them unexamined, uninterrogated, uh, and pretty soon we start seeing the world in terms of them, and we wonder why. You know, why don't we feel good? Well, maybe it's because we're eating pizza and not thinking enough. You know, that's <laughs> that's as simple as that. Uh, but to take the disappearing inventory idea and to evolve that into this question of exploring, navigating versus the tourism frame. Because tourism can be kind of fun and, and we're all about fun. We don't want to diminish the idea that, you know, you don't have to be on full uh, explorer, navigator, discovery sort of mode all the time because that, that takes uh, a lot of ginger, so to speak. Um, yeah. It, it's, but we do want to know where is the line of demarcation between tourism and our responsibilities therein and our expe expectations for any kind of satisfaction or fun. Uh, how does that diverge from the more rooted uh, center of taking our worlds with us, taking our sense of home with us, taking our maps and compasses with us? And I think that the idea of the map is, is maybe the starting point because in my view that is the most beautiful human creation that I can possibly think of. It's beautiful conceptually, they can be beautiful visually. I would argue that almost every work of art in any form, in any medium, is a kind of map. I think we are natural map makers. I think that some cultures have produced maps that appear to be more enduring than others. Uh, people who know Micronesian culture, you know, spread out in the you know, great mass of blue that is uh, the northern Pacific, you know, where the bomb tests were. I'm actually doing a cool new music piece about the, uh, the atoll bomb tests for the hydrogen bombs. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a beautiful form called Matang, spelled with both M-E and M-A, T-T-A-N-G, which are beautiful stick maps of currents and tides. And mm -hmm. it's a wonderful, you know, it's, it's people using local materials and creating a way yeah, to visualize right. their physical environment. But if you then went and asked them, is this just a physical representation of the world that, you know, a model that they can control, they would always say, well, no, of course, it's, it's psychological. We've built ourselves into it. That's the whole point right. of a map, Yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah, That's the yeah. whole point of a map. So I wonder if we could talk about the distinction between navigation, exploration, and tourism in terms of our psychological investment. How much ginger of the world we're willing to take into ourselves to be more actively engaged uh, in any kind of exploration, because surely, you know, when we say tourism, we say, yeah, okay, that's down from, you know, Sir Walter Raleigh. It's not, you know, Raleigh mm -hmm. dealing with electric eels on the Aronico Riverbank. Okay, we get that. 
but surely there are people who are more respectful, graceful, cool, effective, and fun tourists, you know? 100%. Okay, so this is a big idea. This reminds me of the, the crystal and ghost and, and uh, uh, crystal ghost. What was the Pirate. third radio? Pirate. Pirate. Radio. Thank you. That's the link. That's right. That's right. Um, this reminds me in scope of that idea. I love thinking about our internal world and how we interact with things like ideas. So I'm thinking about this mostly in terms of ideas with the map as metaphor for that. And I love the Matang as a kind of, uh, these are the ideas that really resonate with you. They're ideas that probably come from your geographical location, your familial unit, things that come naturally to you. So for example, ideas that I would think about in terms of, uh, you know, driving around Oklahoma City or writing a novel would be Matang for me, right? Right. Uh, and, I, and I'd be able to construct these, you know, these navigational charts and these sea maps out of the, the proverbial sticks that are in my brain. Then we have the map for explorers, which is just your basic, you know, these are the basic locations. Uh, these are ideas that obviously appeal to you just, just, just because they're awesome. Okay, so this would be me going to the jungles of Peru or the pyramids at Giza, and I would just say, you know, I know what I'm looking to do. I know how I want to explore this. I know where I want to go. But then there's a third type of map that we're all familiar with. When you get off the plane, no matter where you're getting off the plane, what do you see? You see travel guides. And travel guides are a bit thicker. They usually have bar and restaurant reviews, and they have things to see while you're in, I don't know, Paris or New York or what have you, right? So travel guides are a bit, are ideas that you have maybe more of a passing interest. We're not yet talking about perhaps the uncomfortable ideas that we don't really want to deal with just quite yet. But the travel guides is yet another step down where you, you are presented with something that, you know, maybe you don't care so much about. So you're willing to give the authority over to these people who appear to exhibit the characteristics that you that you'd like to emulate, right? So if you pick up a travel guide and it's like, you know, the hot spring breaker guide to Paris, you think maybe, okay, maybe that's not for me, or, you know, the wine lover's guide to Paris. Okay, maybe we're getting a little bit closer. Uh, you know, the, the catacomb dweller's guide to Paris. It's like, okay, I'll take that travel guide, right? Because I want to see the bones, you know? So I think that starting off, and these are all in relation to ideas that we find more or less agreeable, I think that that, that tripartite kind of division that we have here is really good of Matang, map, and travel guide. I think the travel guide is a really uh, important addition to that triad, and it's a great way of uh, further advancing understanding of the disappearing inventory, because I think at some point, 
uh, anyone who's traveled uh, to a point where they need or, or would even consider looking at a travel guide, if the travel guide isn't up to date, uh, if a nightclub that you were going to has closed, or if a road is closed, or uh, you know, we're willing to sort of deal with weather, you know, conditions. Okay, well, Yellowstone Park is flooded out, or you know, something like that happens. But when a travel guide is really out of date or not, just not with our current experience, we have a feeling of resentment, and it's a little bit like you know, if we look at our desks and something you know starts to disappear, you know, and we think, oh, wait a minute, you know. Maybe, maybe everything is a little bit more fragile than we realize because we do live in an enormously dynamically interconnected world where the existence of everything is kind of provisional and needs to be reinforced with our understanding, you know? And I think that, that the, the, the triad you've, you've introduced is actually a, a really interesting spectrum because the Matang idea comes from deep tradition. It focuses on historical knowledge passed down very, very carefully through the art form of these stick, uh, you know, beautiful works of art. I mean, I, I, I've had them on my wall uh, as just beautiful symbolic sigils of understanding, yeah. you know. Um, <coughs> Whereas they actually have enormous practical utility on one little atoll, you know, um, in mm -hmm. a vast part of the Pacific Ocean. But I can appreciate it just on a, in purely symbolic terms. And a map is somewhere in, in that sort of both middle zone, but also a grand cultural zone, a, a grand cultural creation of, I mean, think about what, a, you know, if anyone has ever tried to make a real practical working map. I mean, the, you come up against the great uh, deep structure, deep grammar problems of human culture. Perspective and scale. I mean, think about scale. That is not a, an, you know, that is a really deep idea, you know? It, 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 it's the scale that is the key to the map, you know? Otherwise, mm -hmm. you have no idea what you're looking at. And uh, we're, we're getting to a point now with GPS, which is one of my sworn enemies. I do use it. I do admire. I appreciate the innovations, the tremendous achievement of being able to, to have that information to hand minute to minute. But as uh, my uh, wandering uh, Bedouin nomad neighbor goes, you know, the thing about GPS is not only do you have do we no longer know how to read a map? People don't know how to fold one either, you know? Yep. And it's hilarious yeah. to yeah. watch. I like you that, know? though. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was an art form unto itself, like folding a map without destroying it, you know? It's just like, mm -hmm. oh, especially mm -hmm. in the car, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like a Chevy Chase family vacation thing. You think, oh, dear, it's just not going well. Um, but I think the idea of the tour guide, you know, this is another thing that we that shows our complete uh, schismatic approach to contemporary living. Because we damn well expect a tourism guide for every minute of our life, everywhere yeah, we go. That's the problem, right? You know? Yeah, we've, we've definitely leaned on that too heavy. I wanted to just interject really quickly because I love what you're saying. It seems to me that the best uh, 
version of, of map for investigating ideas that you don't quite enjoy is the map itself, the plain old map. Because you don't necessarily want to be coming at it from the sticks that you've built up inside of yourself. But tour guides can also have ulterior motives, right? Maybe if they take you to this bar, they get a kickback. So maybe it's not the best the best bar. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Oh, I think that's a beautiful that you know, this is a, another principle that we talk about so much that it doesn't uh, necessarily equate to a tool unto itself, but it, it is. It's a vital tool. Uh, and I mentioned in the textbook the hidden rhetoric around us yeah. all the time. You know? Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. there there may in fact be kickbacks. There, there may be many reasons why uh, the writer of a tour guide has featured one place and not another. And they may be legitimate reasons, but they're certainly not objective reasons necessarily. Correct, yeah. And we need to be constantly aware of that. And, and that applies to, you know, of course, where we get our news and information, you know, generally. Because everything is a tour guide. You know, yep. you get yep. you you log on and you check out you know your news sources. You know what you need to know today. I mean, that in mm -hmm. itself is quite a rhetorical statement. You know, you need to know this, Dave. This is what's going on in the world right now. Forget about you know feeding your kid. Forget about applesauce and editing and paying your bills. What you need to know is what Nancy Pelosi said. Oh, you know? oh, oh! Big idea, big idea here. Then, when you brought up the GPS, nobody knows how to read a map or fold a map. Ooh, that's a big issue we have then. The advent of GPS has made it, has made our entire relationship to space and therefore even time different. Nobody's an explorer anymore because we're so used to being guided around by a little British, mine's British, a little <laughs> British woman's voice. That's huge. GPS has changed the fabric of space-time. It's the model. It's the core thing that we need to review. And it, it shows the immensity of neglect, ignorance, and the invisibility of, of background that we've allowed. Uh, I mean, navigation, you know, people talking about, well, the explorers led to colonialism. Well, that's a real nice simplification. The idea of knowing that we live on a, you know, a kind of a sphere, I mean, that's amazing. Uh, the whole creation of the navigational frame of longitude and latitude, and Davis Sobel, S-O-B-E-L, is a great nonfiction writer. Her book, Longitude, is a beautiful, beautiful uh, background for people. Um, she's a very clear nonfiction writer. But the ability to deal with longitude at sea is, is almost more astonishing than I can even deal with. I mean, it's not the kind of, of innovation that a single individual is capable of. It's a cultural level. It took a lot of time to get there. And now with GPS, I mean, we don't even, no one has any idea. No one has any idea what's going on. No one knows anything about the Greenwich Observatory and the cultural traditions behind that. So yes, there is a lot of cultural, socially constructed stuff. You know, of course there mm -hmm. is. And yeah. yet, and yet, 
that is not entirely true. I mean, yeah, yeah, the equator on a globe, as opposed to the planet, a globe is the conceptualized frame of Earth. That is socially constructed. But I can tell you the equator is very real physically when you're on it or near it. And you don't, there are a lot of clues to it, you know? And GPS is, is the beautiful example of everything being smoothed and flattened yep. so that pizza gets delivered on time. How did that Amazon delivery go for you? Was it good? You know? I mean, <laughs> you know, that's all that people think about now. And how the stuff actually happens. You know, if we just stop for a moment and took one major thing, and the disappearing inventory would be a GPS is a beautiful way to go. If you just pulled at that thread, which is more like a series of ropes, and you keep pulling, and you keep pulling, you find out that, you know, a mid-19th century whaling ship has 300 specialist skills and trades on board, you know, at least, you know. Think about that. I mean, it just gets more and more intense, and we're into flattening all the curves because we just want the pizza delivered on time. We've, we're too busy. We're too busy ignoring all of life. That's our, that's our real occupation today. We're, we're too busy ignoring the world. That's our occupation. We're, we're all professionals at that. To start pulling at any of these threads, because if we did, all of the simplifications, all of the flattened curves and the pounded down edges that were handed by the media, or politicians, corporations trying to sell us more shoes, more pizza, all of that would stop, you know? You sent me a text on Friday with a quote from the Smithsonian Magazine, and this is the quote. An 1896 column in the London Spectator mourned the impact of the bicycle on British society. The phase of the wheel's influence that strikes most forcibly is, to put it briefly, the abolition of dinner and the advent of lunch. If people can pedal away 10 miles or so in the middle of the day to a lunch for which they need no dress, where the talk is haphazard, varied, light, and only too easy, and then glide back in the cool of the afternoon to dine quietly and get early to bed, conversation of the more serious type will tend to go out. So this is a, this is a problem that has been a long time in the making, but what if, what if that writer is correct? What if there is something about the... And I love bicycles. I would never get rid of mine, uh, though I haven't been able to use it very recently for obvious reasons. What if they're right? This relation of space and time <clears throat> to people is, you know, necessarily exacerbating some of the problems. And I will say, in a semi-digression, but I will say it's not that people throughout, it's not that there have never been incurious people before 1896, right? Though it's always existed in some form or another. But uh, I believe... I believe this woman's name is Sarah Perry. Apologies if I'm getting it wrong, but she posits that there have been different consciousnesses throughout time, right? So people may have always been ignorant and smart by turns or violent and peaceful by turns, but 
that there are in fact different consciousnesses that if we were to hypothetically get beamed into the head of one of these people on these whaling ships in the 18th century, 17th century, our entire consciousness structure would be different by virtue of the spaces and the times that we inhabit, right? So the bicycle to the GPS is <laughs> leads us here, basically. It's, you know, this is the thing. I mean, I, if we really start to just, even just over two or three minutes alone, start to appreciate the idea of different consciousnesses on a culture-wide basis historically, we would realize that all of the current historical revisionism is just nonsense. We have no idea. I mean, it was not so long ago that people walking around would not have a silly advertising jingle stuck in their head. You know? Right. Think if how they had that, a song what, at all. One little difference there would change their whole state of interior mental experience. So we have no idea what was going on. And the only way we could get any sense of appreciation about what was really happening in people's heads and hearts in the past is through the disappearing inventory idea of being able to track down some of these structural changes whether it be the internal combustion engine, the telephone, the internet, or the bicycle. All of these things had enormous impacts on how people thought and how they lived and how they communicated or interacted or did not interact, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we've, you can't normalize complexity as something you've said in the past episode. And by that you mean you can't flatten the crap out of what is beautifully complicated inherently. You've got to just deal with that and follow through some of these complications as best you can. As, as, as much as you have energy, time, and ginger for, you know? But we need a bit more of that because every time we flatten something out, we've, we've just flattened out our potential, you know? Love it. Yeah, that's great. I think that's a good spot to pivot. I, that was uh, a really big idea, two big ideas in a row. Um, and I think that there's a lot to chew on there. I, I really dig this. Uh, this is opening up a lot of doors in my brain that I can move around in, uh, in my own kind of spatial matang kind of way. Is it matang or matang? Uh, I say Matang, but it, it's said both ways, and it's spelled both M-E and M-A. Okay, okay, cool. But so they are beautiful sure art forms. Right. They are beautiful art forms, and people can enjoy them purely in a decorative sort of way. But they, the, the, the functionality of them is something quite beautiful. They tend to be fairly tactical and smaller scale, so that, uh, you know, and, and people in, in the, the Micronesian islands, uh, a large part of which are part of America, um, which we often forget, uh, they were the scenes of, of tremendous combat in World War II, they're the scenes of the hydrogen bomb test. They are beautiful islands, they've been embattled environmentally, but they're culturally very, very interesting. But seafaring people, and that it's kind of, that's everybody. You know, you made your, your living fishing or dealing with 
you know, the ocean, if you're out in the middle of the Pacific in some way, families would tend to have a collection, like a library of metags. So it's another, you know, the map in the book is another beautiful sort of idea. Maps are red, so they're a kind of text. Uh, they are sigils in, in the sense that they have a symbolic, uh, relatively immediate visual uh, value, but they're just a beautiful, beautiful idea. And I think that the map concept is something that we could uh, explore further because an enormous amount of human history hinges on the invention of the map as an idea. This, this podcast is kind of a Matang, if you think about it. I'd like to think that way. Yes, that's one of my personal sigils, and I think that, that we are certainly, uh, you know, we're, we're trying, at, you know, yeah. we're, we're on that frame, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Small scale can be appreciated as just a fun piece of art or something a bit deeper if you wanted to put that time in. Anyhow, I like the, I, I, I have a Matang podcast. It's a good frame. Uh, for me, at least. Yeah, I think so. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, map map makers, matang makers. I dig it, man. Yeah, this is. I'm going to uh, do some Google image searches for matangs, and I'll use one of them as the cup, the header image for this episode, of course. But uh, yeah, big. I that's that's a that's a huge idea. Um, did you want to touch on anything else before we move into imaginative challenge? The kind of the the late show schedule. Uh, you know, I just, this is, uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's related per, on a peripheral sort of level, but I would like <laughs> to just insert, I, I went back and read some Rambeau lately, who I think is a hero of many of our listeners. I mean, he's such an important figure in terms of the rise of, of modern poetry, the symbolist movement through surrealism. Uh, he, he stopped writing at age 20. You know, he, he lived this debauched, crazy life in Paris with Paul Verlaine, uh, you know, an older poet, absinthe, uh, drenched, uh, derangement, systematic derangement of the senses, as he said. Uh, he did an enormous amount of, of, of traveling. Uh, he went to, eventually, to Yemen, which is, you know, pretty hardcore, and then to Ethiopia to be... Uh, a nominal sort of merchant, but really a kind of quasi-gun runner, uh, ended up uh, having his leg amputated and dying in Marseille. Uh, I like the fact that at one point he joined the Dutch army just so he could get free passage to Java. Talk about, you know, making your own maps. He then, he was in the military, I mean, imagine, you know, I mean, he was so hardcore he could actually deal with being in the military from, you know, total bohemian wandering the sewers of Paris, you know, on absinthe and hashish, he, you know, turned himself through ginger and just grit into a soldier. And then he deserted into the jungles of Indonesia (laughs) and managed to return to France incognito. I mean... I, I think that is a championship effort, and I don't think that we have many poets today, with respect, with respect, I don't think we have many poets capable of that. But peripherally, he has a beautiful little mention. You know, there's famous for so many lines, you know, uh, 
I alone have the key to the savage parade, you know? He's just a beautiful, beautiful, lyrical monster. But there's a, there was a moment that caught my eye that I think ties into this idea of, of map making, uh, tradition, culture, orientation, and a lot of the themes that we've talked about in terms of growing up and initiation. He has a moment where he's just wandering uh, a Paris street and he sees these children listening to a baker, you know. Here is a, you know, a baker is hardcore work. They're up at three o'clock in the morning. They're working with their hands. They're creating food. You know, it's, it's a great example of labor. Uh, but it's not like making machines or, you know, it's, it's food. Um, but it's really, really difficult work. Bakers work hard. And Living material, too. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's just, there's, and there's so much ancient skill and knowledge going into it. I mean, baking is, is, is kind of counterintuitive. I mean, let's just eat that rabbit raw, is my idea, <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, and, and the idea of, like, baking bread, wow. I mean, bread, I mean, think of the, the bread as a metaphor just is, is huge across, or in, and it's all its different forms across culture. It's just, it's amazing. But the baker is singing an old traditional song, and the children are watching in rapt attention and listening to this old song as the baker is making bread. You know, typical little, you know, French street cleaner thing. Nothing dramatic, no great source of, of tourism or exploration, excitement, and yet, and yet it's a whole window to another world and a soundtrack to another state of consciousness. And I read that and I thought, you know, that scene is so vividly rendered, but I cannot imagine that happening today where children would be interested in watching someone at a great traditional line of work with their hands, but also with their minds and their memories about where these recipes came from, how you do it, how you get the textures right, what's going on. But then singing, you know, this an old song, you know? I think today's kids would uh, shirk in horror at anything that wasn't part of their cohort's experience, you know? And I, I don't know, that really hit me. So that would be uh, a, a note to end on, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, your uh, response to the imaginative challenge and uh, then uh, a, a bit of a tool and a tip for and a dream for the week. All right, sounds good. Here's what I've got for the imaginative challenge. It's about a deal. There has to be a deal involved. So, <clears throat> being a crime fiction guy, I'm conceiving of a family of assassins who have been assassins for hundreds and hundreds of years. Their tradition spans time all the way back to the to the Renaissance period where they you know, they worked for the Medicis and people like that. So they've gotten really good at their craft. They're kind of like ninjas, kind of like superheroes. But they have a little bit of a problem, which is that every year they have to meet for their traditional Thanksgiving Day dinner. 
and the politics of the time are just getting so difficult to talk about, right? But how do you talk to your uncle about Donald Trump when your your uncle is a world class assassin, and you are too? I'm just <laughs> so they've made a deal, right? And the deal goes a little something like this: There's no politics allowed for Thanksgiving dinner, and if anybody brings up politics, that person is required through the sacred contracts of the Guild of Assassins. This is an unbreakable oath. They must take on one of their family members' targets, one that aligns with their political views. So every time that uncle brings up Donald Trump, he's going to be tasked with killing a high-level politician in the former Trump administration. Every time the more liberal teenage assassins bring up, uh, oh, I don't know, pronouns, they're going to be tasked with uh, executing a critical race theory professor. (laughs) 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 And so that is the deal, and the hijinks ensue. Fantastic. Oh, well, you see, this is why... And uh, you're going to get your own, you know, sub-fan club within the fan club of people who listen to the program. Just people waiting to hear uh, what your responses have been. And uh, for, you know, listeners, there are, there. I almost think that it's worth going back to some episodes just purely to hear David's responses and at some point when we get more technologically uh, capable and savvy we might just pull those out and have a greatest hits uh, because that's pretty been, cool I like there, that there have been some moments uh, my uh, as much as I love I think the diarrhea story I've mentioned that before David's response mm-hmm. to can diarrhea be good ever uh, was was a, a highlight, but I, I still think the magical uh, corporate mission statement or the completely nonsensical uh, cyber consultancy firm was one of the best uh, examples of of satirical a satirical critique of how corporate language has completely uh, descended to uh, the level of, of just nonsense. It was just beautiful. It was poetic and, uh, and rich and also completely vapid and empty of all <laughs> meaning, which was a real achievement. So I think at some point, uh, as, as we build on this, but uh, in the Psychic Defense Manual, we are trying to provide some clues of how you as listeners can engage in the imaginative challenge idea in your own lives. Because it is a tool that if you give yourself permission and give yourself a little ginger to engage with it, you will find rewards. You know, it's like any exercise program. You only get what you put into it. But there, there is really something that uh, is, uh, is very important there. So well done. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you liked it, and I'm always happy to, you know, it's kind of funny, but, uh, you know, rich and poetic and beautiful, but also completely vapid and empty is, is a good descriptor of how I like to live my life. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, but, 
Yeah, you know, it's uh, uh, I I'm, I think that's a very interesting remark. But I think the ability, uh, and I hope listeners, you know, really grasp this: the ability to ascertain uh, content quality is is kind of the ultimate skill, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we have to learn that from multiple points of view, and we always need to be taking on board new insights, new potentials, new teachers, you know? Yeah. New teachers right. is, is, is something that you don't learn in school, you know? That's a hard mm. thing, you know? True. Yeah, you feel like you just have to take whatever they give you. But, no, I, I do appreciate that. I really enjoy doing the imaginative challenges. Uh, as I've said <coughs> to anybody who will listen, they've been, uh, of all of my podcasting adventures, they've easily been the one that has helped develop my brain the most and really get me to a cool place on a day-to-day basis so on that note another aspect of this show that i always find really helpful are your tools and tips so what you got for me today okay the tool is really uh it's something i'm 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 doing a lot of, of work on i think it's uh it's part of a new book it figures into uh the psychic defense manual a little bit, uh, but it's certainly part of a, a new nonfiction book I'm working on, and it's part of a, a, a workshop seminar thing I do that uh, I really, really believe in, because, you know, if, if anyone is involved in, uh, in writing in any, any way, uh, but you don't have to, you, you hear this enough, of finding your voice, you know, voices that must be heard. Well, I think we should really focus on being able to uh, to change our voices and to have voices that are rich and capable. I love it. I love it. Sorry. Many yeah. things, right? You know, isn't that uh-huh. kind of what, you know, you don't want to uh, have just one right. voice. Exactly. Have, have many voices. But think about, you know, that weird expression, the words that come out of your mouth. You know, I mean, David's involved with uh, a, a, a child that's just over a year now. There's a lot of emphasis on uh, what goes into Gus's mouth. You know, that's that's kind of important. You know, it's it's important, but it's oh, important yeah. for all of us. You know, and you know, I know people who've worried about COVID and they're washing things like 50 million times, and you know, things that go into our mouths are, are really we take some notice of. But what about the things that come out of our mouths? So my tool for this week is intentionally, intentionally, deliberately, meditatively but authoritatively try to experiment with some things that come out of your mouth. I mean, consider these two very different, very different phrases. The number of protons in the nucleus of an atom is the defining property of an element. Okay, that's one. Now consider this. We're up against some big time heavies. All we can do is hope for a lucky break. You know, take on board. I love that on board. I feel like, I, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's a great, if you don't think of yourself as a some sort of craft and a ship, you know, or some sort of vehicle, well, I don't know. I'd encourage you to think about that. But take into your mind and let come out of your <coughs> mouth 
some phrases that are entirely different to your normal frames of speaking and you will expand your mind. I was just uh, having dinner the other night I thought I'm going to watch an old pirate movie so I watched Charles Lawton who's about the finest actor that I mean I just can't even imagine Charles Lawton as Captain Kidd and when he says your presence is becoming increasingly irksome to me I mean I just I want to just repeat that phrase to the point where I can have maybe a hundredth of the Charles Lawton intensity and depth and substance. So use your voice. Take into your mind and let come out of your mouth some phrasings that are different to you. Be a tourist yeah. in some other mm -hmm. language. Be a tourist and therefore an explorer and discoverer. So that's the tool for this week. I like that. I, li I, I watch a lot of Japanese film, and I like the idea of memorizing a few phrases from Japanese film, trusting, of course, that the subtitles are accurate, and repeating those, maybe saying something in German or French, or, <clears throat> you know, reading the nutrition facts. The um, Reading out loud the ingredients on a can of Diet Coke is a real exercise in lingual dexterity it is sure. that's a great you know and it's that is such a that's a beautiful crystal radio and pirate radio idea there of just doing that because my god you're drinking that stuff maybe you know yeah. think totally about that right. yeah yeah now that is a beautiful inversion I hope people hear that of yeah you're drinking it down okay you're taking that into your metabolism in extremely physical, non-negotiable, that's not a socially constructed thing. That's becoming part of your chemical balance in the short term. Well, you can invert that power relationship and take some ownership of those words and think, you know, I can't even get my tongue around those syllables. And that sounds like something that an industrial chemist at DuPont invented. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. know. I don't know if I want that. You know. I don't Meanwhile, know. ginger, cayenne, easy. Cayenne is such a beautiful. I mean, it's just, it's One beautiful, and, beautiful and it's a beautiful yeah. color too. You know, it's just everything's beautiful about it. It's. Uh, I, I I have a real. Uh, I think of that as a beautiful <coughs> feminine idea. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just. It's lovely. And I knew a girl once named Cheyenne, and she that's was. That's a lovely word. Yeah, she she wasn't a beautiful person, but she she had something about her, uh, and I think a lot of it had to do just with that name, Cheyenne. Such beautiful. a nice word. Beautiful Native American word, and it's uh, you know it it then becomes a location. It's interesting how uh, you know words become you know associated with much bigger things. You know they ripple out. You know, and this is again the disappearing inventory idea can be applied to language and really sh should all the time because where do these words come from? I mean, I can't believe people aren't more curious about that. It's coming out of their mouth, you know? Yeah. It's uh -huh. in their mouth. I, I think we should take a little bit more seriously 
stuff that's in our mouths, frankly, you know? Yeah, just, make, it a, make it a bit of a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Have some gatekeepers there in your mouth in general. Like a, it's like a toll booth or something. Yeah. Explain your, or a, a customs, a customs counter. That's, that's what should be in your mouth. A customs counter. Do you have anything to declare? <laughs> Do you, you know, what's, what's in the bag? Well, you, you at least want to have some beginning of a census of, of the, the intellectual, imaginative, cultural, you know, stuff you're dealing with. A little bit yeah. of it. I mean, do you really, you know, and, and thinking of maps, one of the, uh, I used to, you know, be really serious into uh, collecting maps. I was one of my big, I was studying the history of cartography. I was involved in orienteering. And I had an early 19th century map uh, of a section of Africa that I, uh, because of one of the divorces, I, I, I had to pay some legal fees, and I ended up selling it, and I'm really sad I did, because there was a portion that was blank with the words, area unexplored because of ants. And I just, you know, I think that's such a beautiful thing. But we don't want to look at, our, I mean, it's great to have endless discovery possibilities of ourselves. And all of the great thinkers, you know, across history, across the world cultures have said that, you know, self-knowledge is an endless process of discovery. But you don't want to just have too many areas unexplored that you just leave there. Well, I just can't go there, you know. Uh, you know, you, you want to launch the expeditions into the interior, you know. Have courage, have some faith there, and uh, it's... And it ties in with my, my tip for the, 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 the week, uh, because we're, we're all needing to be alert, and on many, many, many <coughs> levels. We need to have that ginger alertness to face the world. And maybe if we don't have it, if it's at all possible, maybe we should do what dogs and, and very young children do, is, is just maybe have a little lie down. You know, to come back at it more, a little bit more alert. Ooh, but like I, I was thinking to myself that, that the problem with being suspicious is that it takes so very much energy. Mm. You know, it really mm -hmm. does. You need to have at some point an agreement, an agreement within your many selves, with your many voices, of when to have some faith and proceed without suspicion because the suspicion is too much of an energy drain. It takes too much away from other levels of appreciation and engagement. So, uh, so this uh, it kind of ties in with uh, the, the dream and uh, the dream really, uh, it, it, it does uh, tie in beautifully thematically with what we've been talking about. Um, I was mentioning to David off mic that I, uh, you know, I, I live up on a, a, a desert mountain that alternatively looks like Mars or the moon, depending on the quality of light during the day. And uh, I, was, I was out um, 
And I do take uh, trekking poles just to kind of, because uh, it's, it's, when I go off the, the track, it's, it's rocky and, and, and uncertain mm-hmm. land. But I also do it for a reason that, that came up. Um, I didn't need to use them directly for this, but it, 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 it just made me feel a little bit more confident. Uh, I came on a, a full, fully mature uh, rattlesnake. Um, which are beautiful things, you know. They are beautiful things to see in the wild. Uh, they're patterning. Uh, I mean, th- there's a reason why every culture in the world that has uh, snakes in their natural environments has some sort of, you know, mythological connection with them. It's, yeah, it's just generation type stuff. Yeah, it, it's impossible to ignore. I mean, uh, the snake devouring its tail, yin and yang. I mean, from the the Norse mythologies to the deep Eastern mythologies. I mean, snakes are, are kind of just pretty major. Uh, so I saw this this uh, quite beautiful, uh, but not you know a tropically beautiful. Uh, snake. It was it was fairly camouflaged. Uh, I was just being. I, I'm alert to to the ground. You know, that's another reason why I like to stagger through its sort of rocky, uncertain terrain. Is it makes you a little bit more aware of like, oh, a little wildflower or a little broken bit of glass or maybe uh, a, a you know a coyote bone. You know, um, mm-hmm. so you, you pay more attention to that. But my instinctive reaction of course was to accept this denizen of, of my ecosystem on its own terms and and move decisively on to not linger you know to not yeah. create more stress within the snake because yeah. its message was yeah just just keep moving I know smart I got nothing smart against move. you you know I, I got yeah. nothing against you being out here but just you know steer around me uh, well that's yeah really great but it was so moving and this doesn't happen always I'm sure people will agree that, that you don't have an immediate uh, reference or echo in your dream life of, of something from you know physical short term uh, life but I did I, uh, I had a dream about um, about the snake or a snake uh, it, was, it was a little bit more richly uh, colored in my dream and it was a little bit more uh, substantial. Uh, but as I approached it in the dream, uh, it engaged me with a level of communication that I guess you'd say was, was telepathic. And uh, I must have been sort of a near waking because they say that you know, when, you, when you have any understanding that you're dreaming, you're, you're coming out of it. And Yet the snake said to me in this voice that was decisively different than all of these uh, AI, Siri, Alexa voices, not because of of any sort of gender uh, thing, but it was just more the resonant richness of it. And I suppose it had a kind of maybe more of a male quality than a female quality, but I don't mean to make a gender value there, but it was just the, the depth of it, like uh, not every uh, Welsh person you see walking around speaks like Anthony Hopkins or, or Richard Burton, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. it, it was a level of, of just uh, sonic 
but completely soundless depth and sheer substantial authority. And it said to me, you seek to know where you go when you're dreaming. Here's the answer. In your waking life, instead of ever thinking, I am, always say, think about, I am here and where you are. Because you can never be nowhere. And I thought, yeah. wow, you know? I mean, <coughs> Descartes said, you know, I think, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. Well, was he in Paris when he said that? Where was he? Was he yeah. on the toilet? You know? We need to get back to where we are as bodies, as presences in the world, in order to realize the unlimited mind, the unlimited cosmic mind, because that only finds us when we are physically granted, when we're in touch with our defining properties, you know, how many protons, you know, and we are up against some heavies, and all we can hope for is a lucky break. Absolutely, wow. I um, have recently adopted your habit of writing down my dreams. And as you have said, once you start doing that, they become more and more lucid. So I've got, I have a little a small dream. Tell us. Uh, that I thought was pretty cool. I'm driving around uh, Oklahoma. I'm recognizing some of the architecture, some of my favorite kitschy apartment complex architecture from downtown Oklahoma City. Uh, the names for which I don't have. Everything seems to be a bit sunken, but there are tornadoes about everywhere. But the tornadoes have this fantastic quality of being the consistency of, of lava lamp bubbles, right? And they, all these little arms are reaching out of these tornadic things. And so I'm driving around, and the idea is that I'm there to rescue people from these tornadoes. But at the end of the dream, I come upon two giant... Uh, hyenas and the hyenas are giggling as hyenas do and what you said about the snake resonates with me because that's the, the toe I can still hear it you know what I mean even in the waking world I can still hear it but the laugh also meant something to me this wasn't in English it was just a laugh and all it meant was isn't it all really funny and I woke wow. up, wow. and uh, I woke up, and the dog, uh, my beautiful old dog, who's on our last leg, wanted to go out, and I actually followed her out at 3 a.m. because I was so freaked out about the possibility of there being hyenas in my backyard, uh, which was kind of a cool experience—a hot Oklahoma night after a dream like that. That's so beautiful. My legs. Thanks, That's man. beautiful. You know, and I think that. Uh, I, what I could, what I what I saw in my mind, people might remember, you know, uh, maps. Both, you know, because we're Americans, uh, David and I, we think of 
those maps that were for children of showing states that are famous for certain things, and like Iowa would have a giant, you know, ear of corn, you know, <laughs> you sort of symbolically <laughs> reference that. I, I would love to see a, a David map of Oklahoma that, in addition to, uh, you know, an obvious thing like a, a, a tornado, which is quite a beautiful image, we get some of David's private mythologies of hyenas and some of the strange monsters and, and sort of Lovecraftian creatures that uh, occasionally sort of wander through your mind. Uh, but we should all have our own, you know, maps that way, you know? If, mm -hmm. if, because that is our psyche, you know. That's if if we could visualize that, and I, I think that one of the things that as we progress, uh, Dave and I have talked about, you know, kind of retreats and workshops, and um, there was a great sort of old hotel ghost town that he mentioned recently uh, mm -hmm. in an episode, and there's a, a place out my way in Tonopah, the Clown Motel. What could go wrong there? But we could have some workshops where one of the, the techniques is to create personal psychogeographic maps, you know, because mm. if we can become better Matang map makers, uh, there, there is a powerful magic in the visualization and the being able to speak aloud something. This is the, the you know, the human magic starts with that. How can I visualize something to share? How can I vocalize something? That's it. That's the heart of the whole deal. I like the name for the class will be Matang and Metaphor colon creating your own psychogeography. There you go. <laughs> there you go. I think we've got to make that happen. We will we will definitely be on the case and that I think could be a great starting point for the psychic defense uh, volume 2, you know? You know?